In today's episode, we open our Bibles to Joshua chapter 5. This is a crucial chapter in the narrative where the Israelites, led by Joshua, take their first steps toward conquering the promised land. It's a chapter full of deep symbolism and meaning as it details the circumcision of the Israelite men and the observance of the Passover, symbolizing their renewed commitment to God. And with the daunting walls of Jericho on the horizon, this chapter sets the scene for the incredible challenges and miraculous events that will test the Israelites' faith and determination as they move closer to claiming their long-awaited inheritance. But what does this chapter have to do with us today? Well, we'll find out. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Thursday, September 21st, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Go learn how they can help you or you can help them in their great ministry to publish resources that are Lutheran in focus, but of course, Christ-centric around the world, lhfmissions.org. Well, I'm excited to introduce my guest this morning. It's the Reverend Matthew Tassie. He's the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Good morning, Pastor, and welcome to the program. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Excellent. I'm happy to have you. Now, I know you've been on other KFUO programs, but this is the first time you've been on with me. So one of the things I like to ask of my guests, especially if it's their first time, is, well, tell me a little bit about yourself. How is God using you and your congregation uh, for his glory in these last days? Well, it's fun to be down here. Uh, I came from Oklahoma originally, spent 10 years up in Nebraska at a great parish there, and Right after the pandemic, God called us back home to care for the good folks here in Shawnee. And so my wife and I and our daughter, Evelyn, uh, are, are enjoying God's work and word down here back in Oklahoma. Oh, that's wonderful. Now, uh, how long were you, did you, where did you say you were before? Nebraska. How long were you in Nebraska? Yep. 10 years up there in a little town oh. called Mountain. Oh, wow. And so now you... Was it about 2020 you moved to Shawnee, or when was that? Uh, just after, 2021. Okay, wow. So, yeah, I, I moved here to Minnesota from uh, being in Connecticut, and it was right at the end of 2020. So both you and I did the probably unwise thing and picked up and moved right in the middle of the pandemic. But uh, it's been a blessing for me, and it sounds like it's been a blessing for you to get closer to home. And I'm glad that God's using you and your congregation for His will. He always provides. Oh, of course he does. Well, good morning. We are going to go into our text today, but folks, first we're going to pray as we always do. And brother, I'd like to invite you to lead us in that prayer. Well, then let's pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, as you called Joshua to be strong and courageous and to keep the book of the law before him, we ask that you would open your word to us and open our hearts to it by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might come to know you, see the, what you have done throughout the history of the world, and also what you still do for us today, in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so as we get into our text today, we are going to want to maybe set the stage just a little bit, catch people up. I always like to do that. Folks who maybe have just tuned in, maybe they haven't even covered Joshua at all. They haven't been in the, in the mix with us at all. So if you wouldn't mind, before we read anything, 
uh, perhaps just catch us up. What's been going on in the ground that's going to make sense as we move into five? Yeah, it, when I think of the book of Joshua, I always think, you know, Joshua fit the battle of the Jericho. And it's always kind of surprising to me that that takes place so late into the book. <laughs> right, absolutely, absolutely. Even what we got today is is preface to actually getting to Jericho. And, and so, like, chapter one gets you into God equipping Joshua to take over from Moses. Chapter two, they're still spying out Jericho with Rahab, the prostitute, and the like. Uh, and then chapter three, God has Joshua and crew do another Red Sea experience, this time at the Jordan, to make sure that coming into the promised land has those baptismal overtones. Uh, and then four, they actually do it, and they set up the memorial stones so that the same thing they're supposed to do with the Passover, they start learning to ask, what does this mean? And then, chapter five, we're going to get into more of those people asking the question, what does this mean, so that we learn to pass down the faith to our kids from this generation on through? And so God's yeah, let's setting everything up to prepare his people to enter the promised land in the pattern and in the way that. God specifically planned to help us learn what God's purpose is in all of this. Well, and let's start actually by going back just a few verses into chapter 4, because as you mentioned, they say, uh, your children will ask their fathers in time to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, and here's what they are to know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God, or Yahweh your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as Yahweh your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of Yahweh is mighty, and that you may fear Yahweh your God forever. And that brings us to our text, or at least the beginning of our chapter today. I'm going to read verses, oh, just one, actually. Here we go. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that Yahweh had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. So just with those first, actually that first, it's kind of long, so I keep thinking it's more than one verse, but that first verse, we see that God's mighty activity is not only for the purposes of, say, educating your children to fear the Lord, but in this context, it's going out before them and basically sucking the fight out of the people, right? It's, it's just sapping all of their energy to resist them because they know that God is with them. What a, what a powerful way to start the chapter. Yeah, and it, it's worth noting that when Rahab heard about the, the Israelites coming into the promised land, back in chapter 2, she said that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and it, the inhabitants of the land melt away, that same word from 5.1. And then she says why. The reason why was we heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you. And now, because God dries up the Jordan, you have even more hearts melting away. 
that. And I think that's interesting. I bet a lot of Christians don't realize that sort of that Red Sea drying up the land happened twice. I don't know that it, we talk about this particular miracle of God very often. Yeah. Well, I mean, we haven't always in the old spirituals that talk about crossing over Jordan. Uh, this now that's true. That reference. You are right. I I have never really thought about it that way, but you're absolutely right. Especially some of those spirituals that I sang down south. Um, yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. I I guess I never really made that connection. I'm ashamed to say. <laughs> oh well, God's people are constantly crossing back and forth between it. I mean, you you end up here. You end up with Elijah crossing over the Jordan for the fiery chariot. And then, of course, it, its big fulfillment is John at the Jordan, and into it comes Jesus. Right, and that's where my mind normally comes, and I think that's one of the, hmm, what can I say? I, I think it's one of the weaknesses of modern Christians, myself completely included, is that we are so New Testament focused. Not that that's necessarily a bad thing, of course, but I think it's at the expense of seeing those connections from the Old Testament, uh, which is one of the reasons why I've spent a lot of time in the Old Testament since taking over as host, because there's that's a place that I want to learn even more about because those connections really just bring the faith alive and we see exactly the God's hand leading all the way to Jesus. So these things, even in this first verse, are already connecting to Jesus. This is why it's so important, folks, to be in the Old Testament. Wouldn't you agree, brother? Oh, yeah. And if you want to jump a little further back, uh, one of my nerdy places is the, the canticles of the Old Testament. And when God brings Israel out from the Red Sea, Moses teaches them the song in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, and one of the parts that's overlooked because it's a little further down into it in Exodus 15, verse 14, the peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab, all the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Mm, that word again. Yeah, and so they've been learning, the, the people of Israel has been learning to sing this song since they crossed the Red Sea. And this is probably why when Joshua is written, they use that word to draw back these connections, specifically to what happened at the Red Sea and the effects that it has throughout. Yeah, I mean, it's just such this this continuity of of God's will for His people, teaching them, you know, um, along the way, many stages throughout the development of of their kingdoms, the rise and fall, and everything. The one constant is that God is pushing and pointing them forward to the Messiah, to His ability to, I guess victorious over the their enemies and those enemies back then were the Canaanites and the Amorites uh, and our enemies today sin death and Satan have already been conquered by Jesus uh, tell us a little bit about the Amorites and Canaanites if you will uh, we've already covered it a little bit but just just for those who kind of get those confused um, would it be fair to say that it's, it's almost like a generic term for all the people who live in Canaan I mean they certainly have their own kings and stuff but there's a lot of there's a lot of ambiguity on exactly who the Amorites and Canaanites are, unless I'm wrong. Uh, what, what do you think? Well, usually they're 
they can be used collectively, sometimes pretty confusingly. Uh, they, they talk about there being seven peoples of Canaan, of that area, which even that area being called Canaan confuses it a little bit. Uh, but exactly. when you list out the seven, you've got the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Parasites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. And typically they're, they're kind of divided up into what area they're in. Uh, so the Amorites kind of means the, they, they think it means the high ones. So they're the guys in the mountains there in the middle. Uh, the Canaanites, known for being sons of Canaan. Uh, they're, well, what does it say? The Amorites are beyond the Jordan to the west, and the Canaanites were by the sea. So there we're kind of narrowing it down to their locations. And so the Canaanites are by the sea, so that the report has gone from the Jordan, which is in the east, all the way across the mountains, all the way to beside the Mediterranean. So that you, you see this picture of the report spreading and it fills that whole area from Jordan to the Mediterranean that God is giving as the promised land to the people of Israel. And it's this big statement to the Israelites that, yes, God is able to do what God promised and he will give this land to them. And there are some things about the people that's worth noting that these folks really are known for their sinful actions compared to God's word. And so God has every right to bring his judgment against sin upon them. And at the same time, like with Rahab, when the hearts of the people of the land melt away, Rahab's reaction is to say, so we know God is giving it to you, so here, have it. And that's the reaction of faith, because God has promised it, God has the right to lay claim on it, so even though I'm living here, here, you guys have it. The reaction of unbelief is to say, yeah, we know God can do that, but it's ours, and possession is nine-tenths of the law, so come and take it. And those Yeah, let's... I was going to say, I just want you to talk about that just a little more because, and I know you were getting ready to, but expand on that a little bit because I think in our modern times, a lot of people, as they read the Old Testament or even the New, but especially as they read about the, the giving of land that's inhabited by other people to God's chosen people, frankly, our modern sensibilities might say, well, that's not fair, you know? So talk a little bit more about, besides the fact that he's just God and he can do what he wants, why we understand this as a justifiable um, incursion, invasion, however you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, for one, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof because he made it. So anyone who's on a piece of land, uh, unbelief says, it's my land, I have it. Faith in God knows that the cattle on a thousand hills are his. And so if God says, yeah, I want that, it's not that he's taking it from us. It's that he's taking what's his. And That's a really good perspective. You're absolutely right. I think something we could all be reminded of. Yeah, because it means we're all stewards of the creation. And that, that goes back to Adam. I mean, we, we were given dominion over the land as stewards in God's image. And yet when you reject God's image, when you reject God's claim, when you reject God as Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, 
Well, then you are already in a sinful relationship against him. You have broken the first commandment, and because you've broken the first commandment, everything that there follows is an action of sin. And then the people become known for their idolatry, their sexual immorality, their uh, sacrifice of people and of children. And those are just the gross sins. And when you're living like that, God calls for repentance. I mean, he even sent Abraham into the land to wander around, proclaiming who this God is, setting up the pillars, just like Joshua and his people set up the pillars as well, testifying and testimony to the people that this is God's land and he has the right to call you to repentance. But likewise with that, God uses the law he calls to repentance for the sake of faith, so that just like with Rahab, if the people of the land, if the Canaanites, the Amorites, and all the rest had had their hearts melted away and turned to God, he would gladly welcome them as it says many times that many a, a person of the land is brought into the family. And I, I, with that, I can't help but go to the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew 1 and see all of those individuals who weren't Israelites, who were indeed brought into the line of the Messiah, as many times evidence that God is willing to do that and wants that for all of creation. I think that's such a beautiful perspective that we need to remember. I mean, God is God. And, you know, I think one of the books we read in seminary, I'm not sure which seminary, which seminary did you go to, brother? Fort Wayne. Oh, okay. Well, I went to the other one. <laughs> so in ours, we read a book called The uh, Domestication of Transcendence. Mm -hmm. um, I don't think it was a Lutheran author, but it certainly addressed the issue and made you start thinking about how we have taken uh, God and sort of humanized him, uh, not in, of course, the divine incarnation way, but in the way of well, we can bargain with him, or he has to operate according to our own uh, sense of morality or our own sense of ethics, instead, of course, our morality and ethics coming from him. People have forgotten that God is wholly other, W-H-O-L-E-Y, I think, a holy as in completely and utterly other. He is, uh, we even say he, but that's a condescension that he's given us so that we can address him. Um, God is is completely alien to us, and all we know is what he's revealed. And yet, we're so eager to make judgments against God's activities if we don't think that they're right according to our own sensibilities. What a shameful way to, to believe. But that's how I think we all were if we were unbelievers uh, at some time in our adult life. And certainly those who don't believe today, you know, I think that's why you have to understand that when the world is against the ways of Christ— it's because they either, A, don't believe in God, or the, the God they believe in is a creation of their own imagination. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Let's keep, on, let's keep on going. I'm going to read verses 2 through 7. Here we go. At that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haralah, and this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. 
all the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished, because they did not obey the voice of Yahweh. Yahweh swore to them that he would not let them see the land of Yahweh, the land that Yahweh had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised, because they had not been circumcised on the way. All right, so ending there at the end of verse 7. A little repetitive, as Hebrew sometimes is for emphasis, but I'm kind of glad we have that explanation because if all we had was circumcise the, the sons of Israel a second time, I think that would raise some interesting questions on exactly what do you mean by that? Yeah, there's definitely once a person is circumcised, you, you can't uh, take that piece <laughs> off again. Right. Well, that's true. But you know what? I think that speaks a little bit to baptism too, right? How many baptisms do you need? <laughs> well, you can't, you can't do it again. That when, when I talk about God making sure to work all of this stuff according to his plan, that why didn't they circumcise in the wilderness? I mean, you, you had God's clear testimony that on the eighth day, you shall circumcise the kid, the, the male child, and yet they're not doing that for 40 years in the wilderness? Right. I mean, that's a whole generation. Right. And, and so there's something there in the waiting. It, it kind of goes back to the story of Moses when Moses didn't circumcise his kiddo, and they're coming into it, in, back into Egypt, and the angel comes to, to cut him down, and Zipporah circumcises the kid and says, there. Uh, <laughs> right. There's something about putting off the circumcision, and yet it, it all comes together into this moment where God makes a point. I mean, God uses all of time in history to his will and his way in order to make a point. And I think here you, you get this point of tying together in chapter 5. They come out from the new Red Sea in the Jordan. And coming out from the New Red Sea in the Jordan, we're going to tie that together with circumcision. And then, because it, it sits right between, it's going to tie right on over into their celebration of the Passover. And so God purposely arranges it so that you get Jordan River, circumcision, Passover, and ties them all together. He says in verse 8, when the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And Yahweh said to Joshua, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. So I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt. What, what does that mean, brother? Yeah, it's... Uh... God likes wordplay. And that shouldn't surprise us at all, because this is the God who, in the beginning, created all things by the Word, and who the second person of the Trinity is himself, the Word. And all throughout Scripture, God loves doing these puns 
And so here it shouldn't surprise us that when the picture for all the people to see, because everybody knows somebody who's a guy in their families who has this little piece of flesh that's been cut away, and as it dries up, it rolls up. Oh, okay. I, I, wow. You know what? I didn't even think of that. So, uh, keep on, you know, actually, you know what? Don't keep on going. We're going to leave that <laughs> as the teaser for the break. So folks, if you want to learn more about what our pastor is about to talk about, you're going to have to stay tuned. We'll be back right after these messages. We will see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo, and with me today is the Reverend Matthew Tassie. He's the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. But before we get back to what he's about to reveal to us about the word play here in Joshua 5, I just want to say thank you. And you're like, well, listen, I know every time you come back from break, you say thank you, but I mean it. Thank you for taking the time to be in God's Word with us this morning or whenever you're listening. Remember that if you have any comments about today's show or you want to just send a message to me or my guest, you can reach out by email. The best way is pastorboo at gmail.com, P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com, or you can find me on Facebook. You can drop a note just to say hi if you want, but when you do, please let me know where you're listening from and how you connect to the show. Maybe it's over the air or as a podcast online at kfuo.org, live or on demand, or maybe you're using the KFUO radio app. And, and I just learned this from a listener who wrote in, she listens through her LCMS app. I didn't even realize that. I had that on my phone. I checked it out. And sure enough, if you download the official Lutheran Church Missouri Senate app from the App Store, there's a button right in there to listen to KFUO. What a great way. So that is it, folks. We're going to get back to the Bible now. Uh, Pastor Tassie, I interrupted you as you were about to elucidate us on the beautiful wordplay that God likes to use. But in this case, uh, it's going to be an interesting one. So I'm going to reread the text at hand, verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And Yahweh said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. All right, so I'm sure it has something to do with that Hebrew word Gilgal, uh, but continue. You were talking about uh, rolling up. Yeah, apparently that Hebrew word Gilgal sounds like the Hebrew word for to roll. And so roll away. And... Again, God has this way of doing wordplay, and that is the basis of humor. And, you know, it probably should be said that God 
our Heavenly Father is the ultimate dad, so expectedly, <laughs> he makes the ultimate dad jokes. Oh, I love it. He, he can't help the good pun. <laughs> so dad jokes are uh, an imitation of our Heavenly Father. I, I'll, I'll, you know, that's great. That'll, that'll yeah. sell. <laughs> I love it, it, though. It gives you fodder to, to bring to the kids. Oh, but you know, but we also know that he uses this wordplay because it's so useful in teaching and mnemonics and remembering and making things vivid. I mean, it would be very boring if God's word was like a a, a VCR manual. I guess people don't have VCRs anymore. My goodness. But you know, <laughs> whatever, uh, an iPad manual, they don't come with manuals. I, well, you know what I mean, right? If it was a very technical book, and some places are, let's be fair, but it's beautiful when we get these narratives and we see that not only is God a creative God, but he He condescends to us in a way because he knows what we need to, you know, put these things in our minds and remember. Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from among you, so they called it Gilgal. Uh, what specifically, though, is that reproach of Egypt, though? What What is he referring to? The reproach. Reproach means the, to, to say negative things about, essentially, in Egypt. Whatever would come out from Egypt from you, whatever the, the leftovers of that 40 years of the, the constant cycle round and round of people who came out from Egypt saying, yes, we believe God. No, we don't believe God. Yes, we believe God. No, we don't believe God. Do away with that. Put it away just like the circumcision has been put away. You now have a new life, a new way of looking at the world, and it comes through the circumcision tied to the Jordan River. It's God making you a new people here in the promised land. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. I do want to add one little aspect that uh, at least one commentator that I ran across had found, and I'm not sure if you found this in your study too, but it says that it might also indicate, uh, you know, that uh, the the Israelite males had been circumcised by the Egyptian method. Now, understand that we don't have any evidence for that, so this is complete speculation. But the Egyptians apparently had practiced circumcision too, um, but it was a different method than that prescribed in Israel, and and certainly not, of course, because of Yahweh or His covenant. So they just put a slit in, whereas the Israelite method completely removed the foreskin completely. So some scholars have suggested that. Part of all of this is also that they physically remove that type of circumcision. Now, with that said, I think that's a ton of speculation, although it's kind of interesting. I much prefer um, your understanding because God isn't concerned, I think, with the specifics of exactly the surgical procedure as much as he is about his reputation, getting glory over the gods of Egypt, getting glory of the, over the, of the inhabitants of the promised land, and of course, their obedience to him. So I, I, but I just wanted to throw that in there. I don't know if you, if you ran across that. I have not, but it draws into a, another part of this, which is that for God to make a, a joke about this situation mm -hmm. while all the people are recovering, because that would hurt quite a bit, uh, it really does show that whether it's the Egyptian method, the uh, Jewish method, people back then, it, it said that they could know and see because they were a little less what we would call modest today with their bodies. Sure. That, that they did show this stuff when, when they were bathing and the like. 
And for God to even kind of joke about it really helps us see and remember that the Lord sees and knows everything. There's not a, an inch of your body that the Lord doesn't know. <laughs> when he created man, he made us naked and unashamed of every aspect of our humanity. So God knows. Now, in our sin, we desired to hide from God, especially those parts. And yet God instituted this thing that specifically is directed towards that part of our being that in and of itself, we want to hide. And yet God says, no, I see. Y'all see that this isn't a God of some so-called puritanical false modesty. He sees and he knows. And with that, the reminder for Israel that that part of the Israelites aren't going to be the, the main object in the fulfillment of God's promises, but it's going to be the seed of the woman, the virgin born, who's going to come and fulfill all of these things. And so the, the people of Israel had a, a much less what we would call puritanical false modesty sure. uh, about their anatomy than we might today. Well, oops, I dropped my cup there. Well, what we see too also, and you're talking about this false modesty, is and I, I think, I don't know if you use the, the word play on purpose, but to uh, give an inch, um, it's actually 15 square inches uh, on average of skin that is removed during this procedure. So that's quite a bit. But in any case, um, we see that people are going to notice and and obviously not just sort of all the time, but there will be circumstances where people will notice. And this commitment to God through, uh, through circumcision, it doesn't, it's, is this, how do we connect this to baptism? I guess this is what I'm trying to say. You know, whereas baptism, God does something for us through the act. And of course it does require either ourselves or our parents presenting ourselves for it. But uh, at the same time, circumcision is it merely symbolic? We wouldn't say that it has any sacramental or uh, means of grace, would you? Or how do, how do we connect those two? Yeah, as a Christian, we might not make that initial connection unless the New Testament had done it for us. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul says, In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. And so Paul specifically connects circumcision and baptism for the church there at Colossae. Right. And because of that, we then have to ask, okay, what's the relation? What's the comparison? Which is why when we then look back and see that God purposely connects the Red Sea and the crossing of the Jordan to circumcision in, in this time span, that there's probably a reason for that, uniting the washing and the circumcision. Even as Paul goes on to talk in uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 10 about how they were baptized into Moses in the sea, making this connection between baptism and the Red Sea. So because it's there, we, we kind of have to ask, so what's going on? And to me, that draws me back to Genesis 17, where God institutes it. 
In Genesis 17, 10 to 14, he says to Abraham, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. The eight-day-old male is circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house, bought with your money, a foreigner who is not of your offspring. Everybody shall be circumcised, male, and so shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. So there is a tie-in to the covenant and circumcision. And I've, especially with verse 14 of Genesis 17, that says, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. It is this thing that draws God's people, well, draws people into God's covenant people. And that's such a big deal because there all the promises that God makes to his covenant people are given to the circumcised. All the actions that God does for his covenant people are given to the circumcised. So that when God makes the sacrifices, they're for the covenant people. When, when God does the ablutions, the washings, the prayers rising up, the, the altar of showbread, and all these kinds of things in his tabernacle at this point and later temple, it's for the covenant people. And, and so when Paul talks about the circumcision made without hands being buried with him in baptism, I mean, there the the actions of Christ are for his covenant people. And how are you a covenant people? You, you're washed in baptism. So that by that washing, you receive the blessing of Christ on your behalf. Well, his now that... Well, I was going to—I just want to interject, though. We, you know, we've certainly made all of the men in the audience wince for a little while. Um, right. I, I just want to bring in women, right? So absolutely, bab baptism, as you talk about it, we, of course, include women in that baptism, but certainly women couldn't be circumcised. So how were women um, brought into the covenant of God? How might we best explain that to folks who say, well, sure, the men have this visible symbol of, of the covenant that God made with them, which, of course, the covenant's what's important, then why would it happen to the women? How, how do they associate? Yeah, in a way that's not very popular with the modern feminists, but it is through their family. I mean, the, the patriarchy was a good thing at that time. Your father was circumcised, and your family was part of the covenant. Your your husband was circumcised and brought in part of the covenant. Uh, and, of course, with that comes the faith and the passing down. And when you tell the story of it, it does create faith. One of the things I like to say is that who in their right mind would ever believe that if you take a lamb, sacrifice it, drain it of its blood, uh, put it on ye holy barbecue, the altar, and burn it up, who would ever believe that that would forgive sins unless you trust God's word that said it does? Right. And, and here you have this word that continues to create that faith. And so the, the household, 
the father passes down the faith with his wife to the children. The children believe because they know that their family is part of that covenant. Let's let's step back a, a second too, though. As we talk about mm-hmm. this covenantal relationship, we've connected it to baptism. Um, I think one thing that we haven't brought up, and maybe it's just because it's a little too obvious, but this is the first thing they did, right? I mean, as soon yeah. as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, right? All of that, that's just at the very beginning, they're hearing about God's activity. So at that time, Yahweh said to Joshua, make flint knives, which flint can be extremely sharp, sharper than a scalpel, So, so and circumcise the sons of Israel. So we see here that that it's like so important uh, in God's mind for these people to undergo this uh, before they really start making headway. You mentioned earlier that this is pretty early on in the narrative, and there's a lot of stuff happening before, you know, the Jericho incident, which is kind of the focus often, but so much more going on. But this is like one of the first things they do. Um, I, I, is that just to emphasize the importance of it? Uh, is there some other reason I'm not thinking of that God chose this to be, okay, this is step one? There's two things I saw looking up that has to do with this. The one is, well, it kind of draws you back to the picture of uh, after the incident with Dinah and Levi and Simeon, after the the guys had agreed to circumcise themselves and Levi and Simeon took advantage of it to kill all the people. Being circumcised has an impact on the adult males that makes them less able to fight. Oh, yeah. And so it is important that the hearts of the enemies across the Jordan are melted at this time. God has provided the way for them to have peace. No one's going to come and attack them, so they have the time to recover from this. That's one reason why they uh, do that it. That makes a lot of practical sense, yeah. Uh, the other reason is because just as they were supposed to go, from the Red Sea to Sinai to the Promised Land, because God wanted that connection. And now that they are actually going into the Promised Land, God insists that they go to the east side of the Dead Sea so that they have to cross over the Jordan. Uh, he, He does these things to connect it all together. So that you see, coming into the Promised Land has this connection with the, the crossing of the sea, which is related to baptism, and with the circumcision, which is related to baptism, so that all together, when you come in as God's people to the place that God has prepared, there is this drawing together, which is seen in circumcision, and which will then be brought uh, even to its, if you want to say, fullness by receiving the Passover. So that it's all tied together, baptism, Passover, the relation of God's people, and the peace that he gives. Well, I think that's a a good segue into the next few verses, which, of course, deal with the Passover, starting with verse 10. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, They ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. 
All right, so that's the end of verse 12. So a couple more verses, but yeah, you brought up Passover. So one of the, and by the way, for clarity, you know, the circumcision wasn't exactly the first thing they did. We had the 12 stones, like we talked about yesterday, but we have the 12 stones, we have the circumcision, and we have the Passover. These are all the first things that they are doing, such important things. But yeah, keep on connecting us with this Passover because, you know, they kept the Passover. Is This is the first one in Canaan. Had they been keeping the Passover previously? I mean, they weren't doing circumcision previously. Right. I, I'm i not entirely sure on the answer to that one. The, the way it's said, it sounds kind of like it's a big deal here. Yeah. As God brings them back in. And we know that God commanded it to be done. We know that, but likewise, God commanded circumcision to be done. And so for 40 years, they're wandering around in the desert. And are they celebrating every 14th day of the of that month, of the first month of the year? I, I am not sure, even though you would think that with the writing of Leviticus and mm-hmm. Exodus and being told, don't let this book of the law depart from you, that they would be reading and doing. But I'm not sure. Do you do you know more specifically? No, I actually don't. Uh, that's one of those genuine questions. And I, I don't think that we 100% know. But I think one thing it points forward to, though, is that God is still faithful to them, even when in their sinful human nature, over time, they kind of fell away from his way uh, and, and his rituals that are, of course, for their own good. And so I, I think that sort of we can look at our situations today and uh, certainly doesn't give us permission to disregard the word of the Lord, but it is a reminder that faithfulness is uh, in God's domain. He certainly is always going to be more faithful, in fact, perfectly faithful, as opposed to our wavering faithfulness. And, And I think there's a little bit of hope there too. Yeah. And also you have an editor of, of a, a story between Moses writing together the story in his five books and Joshua here, that sometimes you can say a thing in a way that heightens it all the more, that you can assume something. Like when you come to verse uh, 12, the manna ceased the day after they ate. Moses hasn't been saying, and we ate manna today, and we ate manna today, and we ate manna today. It's assumed in there. Right. Uh, Yeah, that's true. By heightening it in verse 12, it reminds you, oh, they did, and here's the big point. Likewise, whether they did celebrate the Passover for those 40 years or not, this is a big deal Passover to to remind us and, and help us see that same pattern again Uh, of God's exodus, God's redemption, and God's bringing into the promised land. We do know that the Israelites celebrated the Passover at least once in the wilderness, right, from Numbers. Uh, Mm -hmm. But whether they kept that up or not, as you're saying, um, that is interesting, but even more interesting is the reality that this this one's important. This is the first one as they come into the promised land. Yeah. The, the Passover here, it's good for us to, to remember that the Passover, it, it looked back 
to when God established it with that 10th plague. And from that time onward, keeping it, as Joshua says there in verse 10, is to relive it, but in the sense of remembering that God did that for you, and to have the youngest member of the family there ask, what does this mean? That same question as with the standing stones, uh, that they are to really pass down what it means that God did this for us, that God is that same God who still works for us, and that God is the one who redeems, all the way to the point that the Passover that looked back to that 10th plague in Egypt is also going to look forward to that day when the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world takes the unleavened bread of the Passover into his hands and says, take and eat, this is my body, and takes the cup, drink of it all of you. This cup is the New Testament or new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. So that still today, we in the church celebrate the Passover as this great conflation of Christ dying for our sins as the fulfillment of the Passover, as we look forward even to that day where we will join in the feast of the wedding supper of the Lamb in his kingdom, which has no end. And what a beautiful connection, right? I mean, we we have what we experience, hopefully for you, uh, very frequently, um, every Sunday or every time the Christians gather together, we are connected. Christ has used that Passover, given it new meaning and new purpose, or maybe I should say a fulfilled purpose for what it's always been, and that is, of course, um, as a means of our uh, of, of grace from God for us. Uh, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's our story too, and I think that's one of the things that I want people to take home from as we go through things like uh, Joshua and we, we went through Exodus and Judges. You know, this isn't the story of the Jews way back a long time ago. This is our story. Um, anything else before we move on to this next section? The next section is going to really kind of tease tomorrow, but I just wanted to ask if there's anything else so far as we come toward the close of our program. As you talk about it being our pattern today, it's good to see that the the basic pattern of God giving peace, of God bringing us into his covenant, of the waters of baptism, of receiving the reminder of the book of the law, of his word, and of receiving the Passover feast of Christ, that's still the same pattern that we use in our divine service today. That the shape of God's purposeful plan is still imitated isn't the right word, but followed, patterned after the way we still receive Christ's gifts today in our divine service. Absolutely love it. Well, let's do the next few verses, and the reason why I kind of hesitate on that is because, well, this really is an introduction to chapter 6, but we will certainly tease it. Let's read 13 through 15. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and he looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of Yahweh. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, 
What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Yahweh's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So just a couple of things to kind of prepare for tomorrow's episode. Um, Joshua went to him and said, are you for us or against us? And he said, no. <laughs> what, what, a, what a response. And then, of course, he tells us he's the commander of the army of the Lord or Yahweh. Um, who is this? There's some debate out there, but the, the words themselves, to me, leave almost no debate here. That Joshua falls down and worships, and unlike when John of Revelation falls down at the feet of the angel and the angel says, don't do it. Here, the commander of the army of the Lord says, yeah, you're right. And you better take off your shoes too. Yeah. Yep. Uh, that, that really leaves no doubt as to who this is. It is our Lord. And especially as we talk about that angel of the Lord, it is the pre-incarnate Christ, our Lord yes. Jesus, before he was made flesh. Yeah, and I think that is exceptionally clear, although you're absolutely right. There's plenty of debate out there. Um, and, you know, there's debate on every time we see the angel of the Lord or an angel of the Lord, who it is. But in this case, yeah, he's not being told, you know, no, I'm just a servant like you. He's not being, no, he's being told, uh, yeah, you are, uh, you are standing on holy ground. And it's holy because that pre-incarnate Christ is there. That's why it's holy, uh, which is a reminder to us that anywhere where God comes to us in a special way, we should consider holy, and I think that's a good reminder, too. Well, we are unfortunately at the end of our time together, but uh, it's been a great program, and I've learned a lot, and I look forward to tomorrow as we go into Chapter 6. But first, I'd like to thank my guest. It is the Reverend Matthew Tassie. He's the pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Pastor, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I hope we get to hear from you more soon. Folks, Tomorrow, we go into Joshua chapter 6, an iconic episode in the biblical narrative showcasing the incredible story of the Battle of Jericho. With a promised land in sight, Joshua leads the Israelites in an extraordinary military strategy prescribed by God. As they march around the imposing walls of Jericho for seven days, blowing trumpets and carrying the Ark of the Covenant, suspense, anticipation build, and this chapter holds the key to a breathtaking moment of divine intervention as the walls of Jericho come tumbling down, granting the Israelites their first major victory in their quest to claim their inheritance. That and a lot more tomorrow. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word. <laughs>